This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Education International is the global federation of teacher unions, representing some 32 million teachers worldwide. Every four years, EI, as it is commonly known, holds a World Congress to determine its policies, principles, programs, and budget for the future. It is also where the president, vice presidents, and general secretary are elected to new terms. The World Congress this year was composed of some 1,400 delegates nominated by and representing member organizations. I had the privilege of attending EI's World Congress, where I met and interviewed people from around the world. Over the next two months, Fresh Ed will air some of my conversations. My hope is that these interviews will show unions in their complexity. Profoundly democratic, unions struggle to figure out how best to address the biggest challenges facing the world today in ways that have material consequences for the lives of teachers and students. But unions are often misunderstood. Right-wing politicians and capitalist elites have systematically tried to destroy the labor movement for decades. These attacks on unions have decreased union membership, lowered public opinion, and even found union leaders and members harassed, imprisoned, and, in the most extreme cases, killed. I actually met some teacher union members at the World Congress who recently got out of prison. Fearing for their safety, these members could not join me for an interview, but their stories stick with me. So to kick off our mini-series focused on the big issues facing education unions today and into the future, I begin with a two-part show. The first part is a short interview I conducted with Susan Hopgood, President of Education International and Federal Secretary of the Australian Education Union. She explains what the World Congress is and some of the big issues being discussed this week. In the second part of today's show, I interview Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, which represents some 207 million workers in 163 countries and territories. Susan Hopgood, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and meeting me. It's a pleasure. So can you just tell me where we're sitting right now? We're sitting in Bangkok, Thailand, and we are at the 8th EI World Congress. And what is a World Congress for Education International? What does that even mean for the, the listener who might have no idea what any of this is? Probably the best way to answer that firstly is to say that um, Education International is the world body to represent the teaching profession to, and our member organisations, education unions in more than 170 countries around the world. And we represent 32 million educators, teachers and education support personnel. We're a democratic organisation and the World Congress is an opportunity for us to come together for governance reasons in the first instance, to ensure that we can elect our officers and our executive board members to develop our policies and positions and our strategies for the next four years. Of course, it also provides really important opportunities for member organisations around the globe to meet and to discuss, to share the issues that they are facing in their own countries for their members and for public education in general. And so during this time here in Bangkok and having, you know, thousands of people from all different countries coming together to talk about unions, education, issues in their own countries. 
What have been the big issues? What have been the topics of debate that people have cared about here? Absolutely. Well, we structured the Congress in a way uh, which I think partly answers that. Uh, the big issues are issues for the profession. What are the issues for the, for the education profession, for both teachers and for education support personnel? The, the issues are also around human and trade union rights, very definitely, because we are under attack in so many places. Well, the world is under attack, actually, in, in, in so many places. But, you know, as in the front line of education, we are very much under attack in some countries. So it is those sort of issues. It's also uh, the issues about public education and about ensuring that we can achieve a quality public education for all. And so that frames us. But overall, it's about how we, as education unions, can take the lead in progressing those debates. One of the big topics that have, people have been talking about and championing and, and debating, perhaps, is the very issue of climate change, climate crisis. Mm. And this is a massive issue that we've seen students really take the lead globally. How do you, in your opinion, do you see unions and climate change and working towards mm. you know, massive societal and economic changes that are going to be required to continue for us mm. to live on this planet? Well, of course, you know, really climate change is the biggest threat we face, mm. um, which I spent some time in my opening speech to Congress uh, talking about, particularly because we are here in the Asia-Pacific region and something like five out of the ten countries in the world that are under greatest threat from uh, climate change, the impact of climate change, are uh, in this region. There is no question that climate change is in the forefront of everybody's minds, but that we ourselves as educators have a very, very important role to play because education is a key to actually ensuring that, well, first of all, that, that our students uh, actually uh, acquire the skills to be able to navigate that world and to be able to be critical thinkers and to be able to be global citizens and involve themselves in the debates and make their demands. And we, uh, as educators, also have a role to play that our students understand the science of, uh, of climate change. We have a role to play in ensuring that, uh, you know, our own members, that teachers themselves, are actually participating. You know, the student movement, the student climate change strike movement, they are fantastic. And they are leading the way. They are telling us, look, we can't wait for you adults any longer. And they're we not waiting. And they're not waiting. They are not waiting. Yeah. And I think they've reinvigorated us all. Mm. They've actually reminded us all that we can't just sit back and say, look, governments are not doing enough. We can't sit back and say, isn't this all terrible? You know, that it's all, in 10 years' time, it's going to be too late. We cannot just keep sitting saying that. We actually got to take action. And they have told us that, they've done that. We support their right to do that. And we think they're fantastic for doing so. Yeah, and how do you see unions in the future here? And education unions, unions specifically, like what's the vision in your mind of the future of unions in, yeah. and education? In my mind, my vision is that we are organizations, we're representative organizations, independent organizations that are leading the way in all of the debates around education, around social change, in the fights against, you know, despot governments, in the attacks on democracy, in achieving full human and trade union rights, and absolutely making sure that every child and young person has the opportunity to have a complete, quality, free education, so that we must be working towards, we are unions that actually are showing the way and leading to the achievement of 
the, all of the full SDG goals. Well, it's a very exciting time, I think, in terms of unions and, and education and, and these massive challenges that we face in the world. And, and so I just want to say thank you for your tireless effort helping Education International marshal millions of teachers and other unions together to fight for humanity. So thank you very much, Susan Hopgood, for joining, and I look forward to the next few days of, of the Congress. Thank you very much. And now we turn to my conversation with Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, which represents some 207 million workers worldwide. She discusses unions more generally beyond the education sector. Sharon Burrow, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. You've been involved in unions for many years. Why are unions important? And what is the value of unions in your perspective? Well, collective action has shaped the world in a more socially just manner. Unions were born to deal with oppression. People walked off the job because it was so oppressive that they couldn't take the exploitation any longer. We saw the birth of unions uh, from women in the clothing uh, factories in uh, New York City through to teacher unions who formed in, you know, uh, up to 100, 120 years ago. And when you look at why unions formed, they formed to get to use collective power to make changes. So we say our mandate, the ITC Congress mandate, is building workers' power to change the rules. Mm. You do that through organising, you know, and when people operate together, then you can mm. change the yeah. rules. And history provides us with so many examples of that, that it's a tried and true pathway. With that history, it would, I would imagine that there have been major changes to unions themselves. So how have unions changed? How would we talk about unions today in the, in the 21st century? Well, the foundations are very similar, actually. For teacher unions, which was, of course, my profession as a, a young adult, you know, I trained and taught as a teacher for a decade before I became a teacher advocate through the Australian Education Union. And that was a privileged environment because as a member of your union, you had two hearts. You could fight for educational conditions for students, so for quality public education, from teaching hours, class sizes, through to public education curriculum and funding. You also, though, could uh, join your colleagues in, of course, uh, bargaining for fair wages, making sure that teachers had uh, professional uh, standards, that they uh, were supported through professional development to do that uh, quality job. So you actually could play out a professional and an industrial role with confidence. For other unions, it grew out of occupational uh, collective action similar to teachers. So whether you're an electrician or a plumber or a stonemason going a way back or a seafarer. Originally, it was about the identity of your occupation to a large extent. But then general unions grew up too in agriculture, in um, hospitality now we call it, in retail unions that had more diverse uh, occupational interests but might have worked in a similar enterprise, so you had enterprise unions, or in a similar industry. So while the construction of unions crossed the range of occupation and general provision, nevertheless the ambition was largely the same, how to improve the working lives 
of the members of the union, their families and therefore their community. And what about challenges today? What are some of the biggest challenges that you think are facing teacher unions specifically? Well, I think the challenges for society today go back to the fundamentals of peace and democracy. We have uh, more military conflict in arms expenditure than ever since World War II. We are seeing, in fact, again, the rise of an armaments race, including mid-range nuclear weapons being purchased even in Europe, even in Europe. This is unconscionable and we risk not just disparate conflicts which are growing, but in fact we risk the loss of the non-nuclear proliferation treaty itself if we're not vigilant. So having to go back to an environment where peace is a commodity we really have to struggle for, where people are losing trust in democracy because governments have failed to ensure distribution and they feel like they're living on the edge, when 84% of workers tell you the minimum wage is not enough to live on, when 60% of families, including middle income families like teachers in most countries, are living on the edge because it's harder and harder to make ends meet and to deal comfortably with the aspirations that even middle income families have, aspirations that keep the economies going with a consumption base, then the world is in a terrible situation. If you think just of the last 20 years, the world's three times richer than it was just 20 years ago. And if you go back to the origins of the social contract arising out of World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, many times growth in GDP. Yet it hasn't been distributed. And so most people commonly think about this as the 99% versus the 1%. But in reality, it's about the despair people are feeling around secure jobs or the threat to their security in terms of employment and, of course, around fair and just wages and the social protection of a safety net with vital public services like education and health that are being eroded. So when governments have failed to distribute the wealth, failed to give people that sense of security, then in reality you have an era where the first generations of children are likely to be worse off than their parents. That creates a lack of trust in democracy. People are walking away. Young people are actively questioning whether democracy is a good system. That frightens me. I don't know if it frightens other people, but what's the alternative? Fascism, dictatorship, authoritarianism, whatever name you want to use, people fought world wars mm. to actually have peace and democracy. And we know that when people have rights, when they have the rule of law to ensure compliance, when they have an adequate uh, wage on which they can build a life for themselves and their families with dignity, and when they have that social uh, security or welfare system to fall back on, then peace is a much easier environment to, uh, to shape and democracy is much more stable. So that's what, why we need a new social contract today. And educators are central to that. Public education is central to that because it's the only environment where you can genuinely build respect for people from all over the world in terms of migrant workers, in terms of different religions, in terms of uh, different races and beliefs. Those things are really critical 
to a stable, integrated society fundamental for peace and democracy. And I've always believed education is at the core of a stable and civilised environment. It seems like you're talking about the value of an education being so much further than getting a good job. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can't dismiss the reality that uh, people who have uh, education, including higher education, and those who are members of a union, those combinations mean that you are probably likely to be up to 20% better off in, in your remuneration mm -hmm. and much better off in terms of job security. But education is about people's humanity, about uh, our respect for history, for societies generally, for difference, and it's also about enjoyment and pleasure and the arts and music, you know, our cultural base. So for all sorts of reasons, education sits at the heart of a, a civilised uh, society, but it's also central to uh, democracy. Yeah, and it would be dangerous, I would imagine, for people who aren't advocates of democracy. You know, an educated citizenry can do things that are pretty unimaginable. Well, and, and an educated citizenry is an optimistic population by and large, mm -hmm. because they do feel like you have the tools to make change, to find the solutions, and to work uh, with each other. One of the biggest issues that I've seen lately where students have been taking the streets, there's this massive conversation about sort of, you know, the Extinction Rebellion, the, this existential crisis that the planet might not even be around for children today when, once they grow up to be our age. How are unions involved when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to this massive student outpouring of protest and social mobilization that we've been seeing of late? Well, the leadership of our students is just magnificent. We've seen it at other points in our history, but this one is timely, it's so necessary. When the climate science is in, we are facing an extinction crisis, and we just we have a, just over 10 years to stabilise the planet, and then a lot more work to do to repair much of the damage. But the students' activism has given people hope. It's caused governments, first of all, to be uh, quite oppositional, and then to actually be uh, conscious that their future as leaders in parliaments depend on the votes of this generation and their parents. And so if anything is, uh, has triggered a sense that we need to raise ambition, it's certainly the leadership of our students. But the global labour movement's been at the heart of the climate debate for more than two decades. We've fought for well over a decade to get just transition in the global agreement, first towards Copenhagen and now of course realised in the Paris Agreement. We're now building on that by educating uh, trade unions from all sectors to go to the table and bargain for emissions reductions, just transition agreements where you've got shifts in technology or particularly in the shifts in energy where fossil fuels are and have to be phased out beginning with coal. And those just transition agreements give people hope they're about securing pensions, they're about securing income support for displacement, for skills development, and of course for redeployment. They're about demanding investment and renewal in communities. 
so that people have the hope of secure jobs for themselves and their children. That's the basis, again, of building hope and confidence and therefore demand of governments to raise ambitions to secure good jobs on a living planet. So we actually uh, have been at the heart of this. It's painful. It's really painful. For anyone who's walked uh, the coal mines, who knows the history of uh, coal miners uh, who built fantastically strong unions, who turned the most dangerous profession in many parts of the world into a relatively safe one, and who've built communities, then to see all of that being taken away is very painful. Mm. But we also have unions who are fighters. And in every walk of life, whether it's transport, construction, manufacturing, agriculture, or the public services, every union needs to do their bit. And so I'm proud of the union's advocacy and commitment, despite the pain and the opposition you, can, you have to tackle along the way. And what about economic changes that are going to be required to create a sustainable world, to not continue polluting the levels we are through the, the whole process of consumption, you know, consumption gone mad in a way. So, you know, are you hopeful that we as a society, a global society, would be able to imagine new economies? I mean, is that even going, going to be possible? I think absolutely. First of all, the current model of globalisation has failed us. The economic model has failed working people. That's why you have massive inequality, the 99% versus the 1%. And so we have to rebuild the economic model and we have to do that with a sustainable frame. So why should we you know, not reform the way we think about, uh, you know, wrappings, the use of plastics. You know, I ha had a young industrialist say in a workshop not too long ago, if you can't reuse or recycle the product, don't deploy it in the first place. It's new thinking, it's challenging, but there are also opportunities for jobs, for new knowledge, and of course for the way in which we live, which is less disposable, if you like. I think all of those things provide great opportunities mm -hmm. and there's certainly new frontiers of knowledge and technology and innovation that again schools and universities will provide the basis for. And what about the future of education unions themselves? How do you see this future? I think the future for unions generally is bright. Yes, of course we have to uh, be constantly thinking about renewal. We have to be constantly thinking about inclusivity and how you provide uh, the floor of that new social contract so all workers are included. And when you have up to 60% of workers now working informally, including many in the, in the care sectors, then we need to put rights, again, that living, minimum living wage. We have to put maximum hours of work and safe workplaces under all of those workers. But at the same time, we have to use our collective strength to bargain for alternate futures and to make sure that full employment remains part and parcel of our demands of government. One of the things I worry about is sort of the negative narrative that sometimes people have of unions. I think of examples of Australia recently, their election where Bill Shorten, the Labour leader, had such a negative narrative on his name, and then you know the country ended up electing Scott Morrison, a deeply conservative individual. I think of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and 
the massive amount of sometimes infighting inside the Labour Party itself over what Jeremy Corbyn stands for. <laughs> and I, I just wonder, how do we counter this negative narrative sometimes that prevails when people think of unions and union leaders and even their connection to politics? Most of that negativity is not reflected in the community. All mm -hmm, sorts mm -hmm. of research will show you that people know the role of unions, that they're warm about unions, that they've had mothers, fathers, uncles, aunts who were union activists and leaders. And I hear those stories every day. You know, when I have a privileged job, probably one of the most privileged in the world, where we can go into any community in the world and you have an instant family who share a set of values, who will stand up against exploitation, dehumanising conditions every day, despite the risk to themselves, then I don't think that the community thinks of unions as being negative. I think conservative politicians and sometimes progressive politicians actually find unions challenging because we challenge them. Right. I mean, we make trouble. I always say, you know, I have the best job in the world because my job is to make trouble where I see exploitation or oppression or failure to uh, provide decent working and living environments for people. On the other hand, when we see uh, governments with courage, with commitment to their people, with a commitment to the rule of law to protect their citizens, then we're their best friends. So whether it's an employer, whether it's a government at all level, from municipalities to the national level, then governments have to make a choice. They want people on side, and that means us, or they fight progress and uh, decency by attacking unions. But it's never worked. Like, we're used to being seen as troublemakers. On the other hand, unions are here, and they're here to stay no matter what the shifts in society are, unions aren't going anywhere. Yes, we have the challenge of union renewal and shifting sounds of technology and climate and all of those things. Jobs will change. They've always changed. If you look at the industries, they won't change. You may add new ones, but you know we always had telecommunications. We just don't have the telephone exchanges anymore. We've always had construction. We just have new equipment to deal with it. We've always had industry and energy and uh, public services. So whatever the industry, it'll exist. Will the jobs shift? Will the technology shift? Yes, of course. But unions will find ways to shift with them. And progressive governments, where they deserve to be re-elected, will be part of the shift to look after people, whatever the environment. Oppositional governments, who people are voting for out of fear, they will actually be tackled by those who are seen today as unpopular. Tomorrow, history will prove them right. And unions are mostly in that environment. You know, we're sitting here in Bangkok, seeing this big World Congress of all these different unions coming together. And what I'm most amazed by is just the level of sort of palpable democracy that's here. People are voting, people are debating, people are reaching consensus. And it just makes me incredibly hopeful to sort of have this tangible sense of democracy, with, which sometimes can feel so abstract. And it just makes me realize that, you know, I'm not sure how many other places in the world actually can say, in these spaces, we can actually be truly democratic. Well, I think democracy is fundamental to actually shaping a society, whether it's on a micro level, whether it's in global forums like this, or whether it's our governments at all of those levels. 
And one of the challenges, how do we rebuild democracies for people beyond our own organisations? How do government democracies not just take responsibility for building living standards, improving rights, making sure the rule of law is there, using our wealth to actually genuinely prosper in the sense of collective prosperity and reporting to people about that. Unions are at the core of demanding that. And with civil society, it is in fact the power of people that shapes the future. But you would have also seen not just that uh, kind of rules-based environment of the debating hall, you would have seen, I'm sure, arguments in the corridors, Absolutely. caucus it's meetings to build the, the commitment to a common position, you know, discussions around amendments and how you could change it, knowing you, you mightn't be able to oppose it, but you might be able to reshape it. So democracy is messy. Yeah. It's chaotic, it's messy. But you know what? It's the best system we have. And, and it has to operate at all levels. And that's why it's so beautiful in my mind. I mean, that messiness is sort of what makes it so beautiful. Yeah, sometimes. I'm not sure beautiful <laughs> is how I'd characterise it, but it certainly <laughs> is something we need to protect and we need to fight for. Well, Sharon Burrow, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and keep on fighting. Thank you. Susan Hopgood is president of Education International. And Sharon Burrow is the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with Education International. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.